0: Hello, I'm Ricky Coopman
1: and I'm Danny Reid
0: and this is Don't Ever a a podcast from the City of Mount Gambier Library.
1: This podcast delves into the stories of the Mount Gambier Library, from authors to innovation, programming to local history. We invite you to join in and learn about what we do here in the library and our place within the community.
0: So the 25th of January this year is quite an incredible day um, for our community. We woke to our beautiful crater lakes area ablaze.
1: You live a lot closer to the lakes than I do. I'm on way on the other side of the town. I awoke to a text message from my mum. But how from your house? Could you yes, it see it, really, smell it? What was the go? It was
0: really interesting. Actually, I woke up. I think it was about three o'clock in the morning. Four o'clock in the morning, and I could hear some heavy heavy machinery. So. Mm-hmm something's going on, yep. and trucks driving along, I wasn't quite sure. Picked up my phone, checked social media and all over social media was fire. Yeah. Um, and at first I saw the images, I thought, oh, I wonder where that is. Yep. Hang on, that's <laughs> a lot closer than I would have hoped.
1: I felt really weird because if you don't know Mount Gambier, if you are listening to this from somewhere else in the world, the location of this fire is right in town and... I was driving home, uh, sorry, back to work from my lunch break on the day of the fire and just watching this fire burning its way across the mountainside, so close to town, yet there was no panic within town and we've got fire bomber aircraft dropping water and you felt like you were right there amongst it. But it was so strange that there was a sense of calm as well.
0: Yeah, I think the strangest thing for me, the thing that sticks out in my mind, is uh, that evening went home, uh, parked my car, and you see water bombs flying overhead. You look up, and it's just strange. Yeah, <laughs> very strange.
1: <laughs> and um, we'll probably end up saying strange a lot, but it, I don't know. It just it was a really weird, surreal day. A surreal day, absolutely. It was interesting because as as council employees ourselves, we didn't even know what council's role was in fighting a fire. Did you kind of feel the same way?
0: Yeah, 100%. I had no idea what what our role would be. Uh, I knew that would be involved in some way, but how that was, I had no idea.
1: Mm, So that kind of formed the basis of putting this episode of the podcast together. That also coincided with Um, us having a visit from one of our dear library patrons. Uh, Her name is Helen and she came in and she said, oh, could you find me the newspaper articles about the Valley Lakes fire in 1944? And I had never heard of the Valley Lakes fire in 1944. So we looked into that as well and realised we have a whole history of fires at our Valley Lakes precinct and there was a whole lot of information that we were learning as it was all happening, so we thought, why not share it with everyone? We've got some pretty important guests on this episode of the podcast. Uh, we talked to the CEO of the City of Mount Gambier, Sarah Philpot. We also talked to Barbara Sanofskis, who is the General Manager of City Infrastructure. We catch up with Helen Patzel and her memories from 1944. And I actually take a walk up to the lakes themselves on a very wet and windy day. Um, and we catch up with Sinaway Giorgio, who is the engineering technical officer. So we've got some a lot of people that know a lot more about this than we do. So we hope you enjoy this episode of Don't Overdo It.
2: Hi, my name's Barbara. I am the General Manager of City Infrastructure at the City of Mount Gambier.
0: Thanks so much for coming in and giving us some time today, Barbara.
2: It's really my pleasure.
0: Um, So, the 25th of January, we all woke up to something that we definitely weren't expecting. As far as uh, our council, how do we first find out about the fires? Is there someone that gets contacted directly or how does that happen?
2: The SES... Uh, first contacted council because they needed some support with the road closures uh, to be able to really start to secure the site. And that happened at about uh, four o'clock that morning. I personally heard about it on the radio and thought, my goodness.
0: So um, throughout the battling the fires, what was our um, role?
2: So our role pretty much uh, at that point in time, because it was under the control of the EMFS... And uh, so we played a support role. So we played support in terms of being able to monitor and manage the road closures that were required. Uh, We had the uh, control area, the grassed area at Carinia Gardens became the control area and the meeting point. Sure so we provided support there uh, we provided support in terms of plant and equipment and personnel to be able to help with fire breaks uh, to be able to gain access or remove gates in which we did in one instance wow. um, and we uh, just were on the site to be available to make the accessibility as easy as it could be uh, for the emergency services and the the fire is so CFS predominantly uh, and MFS to be able to, to do their role, and then uh, at it was the afternoon is when the uh, control and the um, coordination of the emergency uh, officer out on Jubilee Highway uh, wanted the council liaison uh, rep there, uh, which that was myself uh, to go out there, and that's when we started looking over maps and starting planning well. Uh, how we were going to try and manage and stay ahead of the weather um, with the fire, and what backburns would be considered uh, and necessary to try and, and contain it, uh, because we were fortunate in the uh, that it remained on the southern part of the of the crater and didn't go around further to um, yeah, to the northern face of the crater.
0: With a lot of hard work mm. from a lot of people, the fire mm. um, was eventually contained.
2: Yeah, it was. We were really, th- we were lucky that it, we had the Valley Lake. Yes. To be honest, uh, because we had the small helicopters and then we had the fire bombers, uh, so they were actually able to be a um, uh, right there at their water source to get right on top of, uh, um, yeah, dampening out. Yeah, that fire. The only real interruption that we had, knowing that the Valley Lakes there, uh, and being able to have the dips with the little helicopters and the fire um, uh, aircraft hadn't bom- bombers hadn't come in at that stage. Yes, uh, but there was a drone, um, and it was uh, that kind of stopped everything. Yes, uh, for quite a while, and um, and it was unfortunate that it was actually at a key point uh, in being able to control uh, the fire. Um but social media was quite helpful there. Yes. In the drone disappeared. Yes.
0: <laughs> yes. There's a lot of bad things about social media, but that was yeah, a top it. Was,
2: that was that was quite helpful that one. That's yeah. Right. So um yeah, but having that water source really close was really helpful.
0: Now that we've heard about the initial response and the role the City of Mount Gambia played in containing the fires, we are lucky enough to be joined by our Chief Executive Officer, Sarah Philpot, and talked about the impact the fires had within our community.
3: Yeah, I think you're quite right there. Um, certainly I heard feedback from community members, including members of my own family, talking about how devastating it felt to wake up and see our mountain on fire. It was quite an amazing experience, something that most of us haven't seen before it had happened in i think the 40s and 50s and That's you right. know so there had been prior history but for most of us living here this was a totally new event and i think it did go to the heart of what we care about in our community it's a special place for us we live near an amazing mountain we have these unique lakes um, this beautiful voca- volcanic environment and um, we you know it, it's dominant on our horizon all the time and so to, for people to see it it just felt a real shock to our sense of place and our sense of identity.
0: Were you surprised at the community's reaction?
3: Um, no I think not so much surprised I I think to hear from people that it is a place that matters isn't really a surprise I think the fact that it happened was the surprise and we were all uh, all surprised by that and um, none of us I think expected there to be a fire of this nature really on our doorstep Um, and if anything it, it just reinforced for me Um, how lucky we are to live in this great place and the fact that people really cared about it I think is actually a strength in our community. They felt connected to it and they felt like it was, you know, it's their place and they really cared about it and I think that, um, you know, that's a testament to uh, the fact that we've got a great community and people love their city.
0: Yeah, and that's again highlighted by the fact that there's so many members of the community who had offered their help. That was quite heartwarming. Um, but how do you manage that enthusiasm when you've got people eager to help?
3: Yeah, uh, well, firstly, I think um, there's very real practical help that happened immediately from our amazing um, MFS and CFS crews, SES teams, our council staff as well, parks and wildlife staff, you know, really people uh, also from our forestry industry. So a lot of the, that help was very immediate, the very, you know, kind of first responder stuff. Yes. People who are on site, who are fighting the fire, who are clearing breaks, who were um, basically supporting the teams of people. You know, we had people providing food and water and, you know, making sure that people were safe in that as well door knocking our community and all of those kinds of things so there were people who were um, already kind of right from the very first moment involved in supporting and then we had other people who did, who were keen then to make sure animals on site were okay yes. who were um, keen to provide any support again they could in the long-term response you know interest in revegetating. interest from some of the groups who use the area, like our mountain bike uh, people, our you know some of the runners and walkers, yes. and they really wanted to um, to help us in restoring that back to its um, natural kind of state. So, so I think it is. Um, sometimes I think people want to be able to do stuff straight away, and with something like this, we've we've found even several months later, we still don't have everything back to the way it was. It no. takes time. It takes time to. Um, be able to assess this thing to make sure that we can keep people safe in it, to open it up as quickly as we can but as safely as we can. Yes. And so I think some of that's just been about understanding for ourselves as well that this takes a bit more time than you anticipate. You know, we think, oh, I should be able to be open again in a week. But there are trees falling and there's still stuff smoking. And even now, you know, a, a few months later, we're still getting some assessments in some of the worst affected areas. So some of it, I think, is about managing the expectations yes. and the time it takes um, for recovery after you know, an event of this nature. So as we said
1: at the start of this episode, we had the chance to catch up with local resident Helen Patzel. Helen was a very young girl back in 1944 when there was another fire here in the same Crater Lakes area here in Mount Gambier. But doing some research, we've found that that's not the only uh, historic fire that's been in the Valley Lakes area.
0: Yeah, that certainly came as a surprise to me because I just assumed our... Our fire this year was the very first, but how wrong was I?
1: Yeah, and coincidentally, all of the fires that have been recorded in the past, and we're talking major fires in 1936, 1944 and 1954, and then a smattering of other littler fires every other year, almost in between those ones, all are in the same place. And it's just the size of them that's changed. And luckily enough... No major damage to buildings, infrastructure, and no losses of life with all of those fires, which I find quite remarkable.
0: Certainly sounds like a bit of a miracle, uh, considering the terrain and the and the work required just to get up.
1: You know, we we were talking earlier about the fire bombers, and there was no such thing back back then. Um, you were calling on the community to volunteer their time, and that's what is. Um, There's a lot of newspaper articles written about the 1944 fire and there's actually an inquest into that one because it was such a massive, massive fire. And the newspaper articles for that one are really great because they talk about... The, the men who were working in all the shops in the main street, they basically left the shops and ran up to the hill and the ladies stayed behind and they made cups of tea and, and made sandwiches and the newspapers were reporting about which businesses had how many staff working in them in each day. One of them in particular was the old Fiddler and Webb building and they reported uh, that four men and two women had gone to fight the fire. So it was quite specific and, and it was just this volunteer uh workforce that went up there to um to help the fire and that one in particular actually it was march 1936 which was a really really big one and that one um the fire went pretty much the entire way around that internal crater so of browns and valley lake it then went over the ridge of the crater down to Shepherdson road and bertha street and it said that almost every inch of the valley is blackened and bare wow
0: I guess it also highlights that the Crater Lakes has always been such a, a a important part of our community. You know, with everyone, as you were saying, volunteering to fight the fires, it just highlights... How important it is to us,
1: yeah, very much so. And that's a lovely thread that also goes through with it that that you read these articles and there is such um, a sadness in the community at the fires happening anyway, and then the swell of this, those same people uh, volunteering their time and their services to put the fire out. Um, it's it's a weird thing to read about because there's so many emotions as you're reading them. It, but nothing has changed. So in 2022, when again we were faced with fire, it's the same thing that the people in the community were so invested and we we feel so strongly about that area um, that we wanted to make sure that everything was gonna be okay and people just wanted to pitch in and help any way that they can. But let's catch up with Helen. Um, She dropped into the library and we had a little bit of a chat about her memories of the 1944 fire. so when the fire of the 22nd of January 1944 happened how old were you? I think I
4: was coming up eight we have to do our (laughs) some 36 to uh, that was in January and I would have been eight in the May and what do you remember of that? standing at the bedroom window and seeing the whole mountain aglow. you had full view of Mount Anguil and it was just a massive uh, bright glow.
1: And whereabouts did you live at the time?
4: Um, Wireless Road West uh, between O'Leary Road and Wondillo Road. And And do you remember how you felt when you saw uh, the glow? Worried how big it was going to be and awestruck at the sight of it. Yes, Yeah. yeah. But uh, it's something that stayed with me and as soon as you, we heard about this fire it brought it all back. We spent ages at the, kitchen, at, at the bedroom window watching the fire. So we had no transport, no phone, no electricity, no running water, so we were very poor. We didn't have a, a radio until I was fourteen, and then it was a, a friend gave us a, a radio. No, no, we had no way of hearing any news. Mm. So, would you was
1: that then relying on neighbours and people visiting you to find out what was going
4: on? Yes, because we, as we said, we had no no phone, uh, no radio. So it was only, uh, we used to go to mum's uncle's place and they had a, a, a radio with a very deep baritone voice reading the news and that was how, how we heard the news, you know, that sort mm. of thing.
1: So the newspaper reports on the day that said there was no water available to put the fire out initially and there were men, um, they just were using beaters and bags
4: I have seen men using bags to beat flames out, Mm. but I think that would have been beyond putting out with beaters and bags. It was too big. They would have had to make sure it didn't spread and contain it. That was, I would say, the best they could do.
1: So now it's time to get out of the office and actually go for a walk up to our beautiful Crater Lakes area. I couldn't have picked a worse day to go. It was blowing a gale and threatening rain, but nonetheless, City of Mount Gambier's Engineering Technical Officer, Sinaway Giorgio, agreed to meet me up there so we could have a bit of a walk around, have a look at the impact of the fire and find out what's next for the site.
5: I'm actually managing the um, the whole of the fire site, which includes um, the risk management, um, signage, um, the insurance side of things, contractors doing the work and managing our guys through a staged a tr- approach of trying to reopen the area. MFS handed the site back over to the city of Mount Gambier. Uh, I think it was around the 25th or 26th of Jan after the fires and our first priority was basically um um, having a quick look and installing signage um and flagging to keep people out of the whole Crater Lakes precinct that was affected which is rather tricky job actually because there's a lot of tracks that run off you know some of the major tracks within the area so the first the first thing that we looked at was just shutting down the whole area so that we could get in safely to have a look at what was affected, um, what what tracks need, needed to be um, cut off. That was the initial stages um, and we've passed that stage now. So now we're at the stage post-fire of slowly opening up certain sections and precincts.
1: And we're standing here at the moment and there's quite a few um, signs that say danger, do not enter. Can you explain to me what, what the dangers actually are?
5: Post-fire, which is where we are now, well, the dangers were falling trees. Um, there was a lot of trees that were burnt, um, so there was a lot of risk in regards to falling branches. Smouldering of trees can go on for three to six months after a tree has burnt, uh, basically just dependent on weather conditions. So, if there's areas here where trees have smouldered from the base of the, the from the base of the trunk of the tree down into the roots, so we do have areas where we've got you know um, cavities in the ground. You know one and a half two meters wide to half a meter deep just from tr- um, trees burning wow. there's also er- erosion problems yes. and down in the browns lake um that whole face is extremely steep and we're waiting for uh, engineers to get back to us in regards to how or what the stability is of that slope um now we're pretty wet here in mount gambia so we're you know like it could be a chance of having some minor erosion issues or some minus um, landslides on that browns lake face
1: the fire damage is quite evident and there's multiple types of trees here we're looking at gums but there's also pines on the other side do they burn the same are they all affected the same way
5: yeah no so in the blue gums area um gums are you know relatively susceptible to this sort of thing as we all know the um, indigenous peoples used to to backburn Um, so in the in the blue gums area we're probably well we're removing around 50 trees because they've been severely burnt and structurally will will not recover Um, but there'll be a lot of blue gums that we're allowing in the area because there's already signs of re-germination so there's no need to rip out trees that um, are susceptible to fires and will re-germinate themselves. It's why I spend money removing trees and then a whole heap of money revegetating when nature takes care of itself. Um, now pine trees, um, up behind Carinia gardens, pine trees are, are, are a lot different. Um, basically when they're burnt, they don't recover um a lot of those trees have already are already dead as you can see within the foliage uh, a vast majority of those trees have been burnt and unfortunately unlike eucalyptus trees they'll eventually die it'll take anywhere between one to five years so a lot of those trees will have to more, more than likely be removed so that'll we're just waiting for a consulting um a forester to get back to us with some management options in regards to those trees there this might sound a bit crazy or cynical but it's been a bit of a blessing actually because the fires have burnt out a lot of these pest weeds so council in collaboration with the limestone coast landscape board the last couple of years We've been removing pest weeds and plants um, in particular declared pest weeds some of those include like we've got a desert ash or an ash problem here olive problem a cotoniasta problem um, italian buckthorn plop problem it'll be interesting to see how they've coped with the fire and whether that the seed bank in the ground will um, re-germinate and we're hoping that it won't we're hoping that the native vegetation will actually slowly um, and come back in its place.
1: Yeah, because that's interesting you say that because um, if anyone's actually seen very old photos of this area, it's pretty bare. It never looked like the lush green area that we've got today. So if we kind of envision what this site may look like in one, five, ten years' time, do you believe it might look more like it used to back in the day? Is that the plan to help it get back to look like that?
5: a lot of the vegetation in this area was probably introduced by the first settlers in the area given that there's down in the leg of mutton lake it's actually documented as being um one of the first nurseries for you know seedlings of for plantations of pine trees but given they experimented with a lot of trees you know we've got areas of oak trees etc yeah so Leaving it back to its initial state of not having much around is probably not what we want to do. Like the area is very slopy, so we need to be um, mindful of the er- erosion problems that come along with you know steep areas. Yeah which is one of the theories behind the initial pine plantation behind Carinya Gardens. They thought it was planted because of the steepness to, and then they are just trying to reduce erosion, why they didn't plant native vegetations beyond me. But anyway, but the whole plan here is is to try and get rid of a lot of the pest weed plants that we have got and not only introducing some of the local indigenous species here, which were basically Lecoxelans, Blackwoods or um, She-Oaks. Um, we're going to look at putting back some of the grasses and tussocks that were in the area that was probably a lot more prolific um, prior to the the English like looking trees that we have now it's amazing how um, you know native um, trees and plants grow back classic example is we're just looking in front of us here and Within two or three months, we've got a whole area of bracken, um, which has grown back already and is already looking at being like two to 300 mil tall. So as, as bad fires can be, there's also a lot of positives to be taken out with the, with the fires as well. In particular, the you know re- germination of a lot of um, native species. We are actually talking with local indigenous peoples about um, reducing fuel load in the area. Um, so this is a really good opportunity to work with some of the, the, the local indigenous people with, for cultural burns and bringing them back into taking some sort of um, engagement with, you know, with, with the land in, in collaboration with us. Um, so it'd be really good to be able to do some back burning here in the future and reducing some of the f- fuel load that has occurred in the past. So yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an opportunity. So there are opportunities um, and we're just working through them um, slowly, I guess.
1: So as we've recorded this episode, um, it coincides with another opening of the paths and trails around our Crater Lakes area opening up, and we highly encourage you to go up and have a look for yourself. Have you been up there recently, Ricky?
0: I have, and it's great to see life coming back.
1: Yeah, it is, isn't it? You've got these amazing, brilliant green uh, bracken and shoots of leaves and things on trees that are springing back to life. So as devastating as Uh, as the fire was, there's a real positivity about it and it's an exciting place. We want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in to Don't Overdo It, as so many of you do every month. And we also need to thank all the people that participated in this episode.
0: If you'd like to know more about anything we've covered in this episode, contact us here at the library and don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. Thanks for listening to Don't Overdo It, a, a podcast by the Mount Library.